Hello, my name is Geraldine Goescolar. I am Adjunct Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I will speak about the international law relating to space activities and the protection of the Earth and outer space environments. Carl Sagan wrote, The Earth is the only world known so far to harbour life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. We have only one planet from which we conduct space activities and all other human activities. There is no planet B. Today, I would like to discuss space activities and the international law relating to the environmental protection of the Earth and outer space. Interestingly, the body of international legal norms relating to activities in outer space predates the coalescence of the body of international legal norms aiming to protect the environment. It is therefore unsurprising that the space law treaties do not incorporate specific substantive legal principles on the protection, preservation and remediation of the outer space environment. Regardless, the framework of international space law contains some general provision for the protection of the environment in outer space. The 1967 Outer Space Treaty incorporates general principles of law relating to environmental protection. Article 9 indicates a minimum standard for states' parties, obliging them to be guided by the principle of cooperation and mutual assistance, with due regard to the corresponding interests of all other states' parties to the treaty. Further, Article 9 mandates that the exploration and use of outer space should be conducted so as to avoid harmful contamination, and that states' parties are to adopt appropriate measures for this purpose. However, this provision does not define exactly what constitutes harmful contamination, nor does it specify what appropriate measures would entail. Moreover, Article 9 stipulates that states' parties should take such measures only when necessary. Moreover, subsequent state practice has interpreted harmful contamination to refer to planetary contamination through biological or radiological sources. This restricts the application of Article 9 to certain types of environmental damage. Under Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty, states' parties may also request consultations where they have reason to believe that a planned activity of another state would cause potentially harmful interference with the activities in the peaceful exploration and use of outer space. This clause intends not only to protect the outer space environment, but also to safeguard human space activities. However, the obligation to enter into consultations does not carry with it the obligation on the state carrying out the potentially harmful activity to, as it were, cease and desist from the activity. Nor does it require the consultations to reach any particular result. Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty provides for a more general legal obligation to protect and preserve the outer space environment by providing that the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, and that outer space shall be the province of all mankind. This principle designates outer space as a global commons. When read in the light of Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty, which requires states' parties to have due regard in their space activities for the activities of other states, this designation of outer space as a global commons that is the province of mankind may carry with it certain obligations to preserve it for all actors and stakeholders and for future generations. 
Certainly, since international space law is a part of the corpus of general international law, provisions of environmental law may also come into play. Principle 22 of the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, for example, provides that states have the responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control do not cause damage to the environment of other states or of areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. This would presumably also include outer space. When read in the light of Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty, which provides that states retain jurisdiction and control over space objects registered on their national register, this could mean that there is developing international law that states would be responsible for ensuring that space objects over which they have jurisdiction and control do not cause damage to the environment. The international legal obligation to protect the environment has also been recognized as a matter of law by the International Court of Justice in its 1996 advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons, its 1997 decision in Agapchikov and Ajimaro's case, and its 2006 judgment in Pulp Mill's case. The status of the natural environment, including outer space, as being of common concern and global responsibility appears to have been accepted as a crucial feature of international law. This is of particular relevance to Earth orbit, it being a common resource of vital interest to humanity. An integrated concept of international law that applies principles of international environmental law to all common spaces, including outer space, is preferable. It recognizes the artificiality of global boundaries in protecting a global space common to all, and establishes the protection of shared spaces such as outer space as an obligation ergo omnis. Now, space activities are, in some respects, no different than other activities in other environments on Earth. The technology and production methods used to procure the machines used in its exploration have huge environmental footprints. Access to outer space, much like transport in general, involves emissions and pollution. However, there are three areas in which activities in outer space have a unique impact on our environment. Space debris, the risk of contamination from nuclear power sources and biological planetary contamination. Let's turn first to space debris. Orbital debris is any man-made object in Earth orbit that no longer serves a useful purpose. Examples of orbital debris include the upper stages of launch vehicles, derelict spacecraft, solid rocket motor effluents, and small flecks of paint from spacecraft released by thermal stress or particle impacts. Space debris has been accumulating in Earth orbit since the launch of the first satellite in 1957. The prohibitive cost of space missions meant that every last bit of fuel is generally pressed into service. Until recently, the thought of using fuel to move non-functioning objects out of useful orbits appeared absurd. The later discovery that orbital debris would have disastrous consequences on the use and exploration of outer space seems obvious in hindsight, but meant that the law was trailing behind the mass of non-functioning objects in Earth orbit. Space debris now comprises one of the greatest risks to operations in outer space. Aside from over 1,000 functioning satellites in Earth orbit, there are more than 22,000 objects larger than 10 centimeters, approximately half a million particles between 1 and 10 centimeters, and tens of millions of particles smaller than 1 centimeter orbiting the Earth. The problem that this multitude of orbital debris causes is compounded by the fact that they tend to be clustered in the most highly used and valuable portions of Earth orbit. 
studies of long-term debris environments show that the total number of space debris objects in Earth orbit will increase in the foreseeable future, in part due to the Kessler effect. The Kessler effect, also known as collisional cascading, occurs when larger pieces of debris are fragmented by smaller pieces to become fragmenting agents themselves. This fragmentation will reach a tipping point where debris in Earth orbit will become a greater risk to functional spacecraft than natural space objects. Moreover, smaller pieces of debris are more difficult for present technology to track, trace and clean up. Until the mid-1990s, the amount of orbital debris grew linearly. Mitigation efforts, coupled with fewer launches, led to a decrease in the amount of catalogued orbital debris until the early 2000s. However, in January of 2007, China destroyed its polar orbiting weather satellite Fengyun-1C in an anti-satellite weapons test. February 2009 then saw the first collision between two satellites, the US satellite Iridium-33 and a non-functioning Russian satellite Cosmos-2251. These two incidents led to more than 5,500 debris particles, of which some 90% are still in Earth orbit, making up 36% of all debris particles in low Earth orbit. The potential damage by debris particles, however small, is due to the high velocities at which the particles orbit the Earth. In geostationary orbit, particles travel at between 100 and 800 meters per second. In low Earth orbit, these speeds increase to between 6 and 14 kilometers per second. At those speeds, a debris particle smaller than 1 centimeter in size can easily disable a functioning satellite. Debris avoidance maneuvers, with their attendant risks and costs, have become increasingly regular. The consequences for crewed spaceflight are even graver. Between the year 2000 and 2010, the International Space Station has had to conduct an average of one collisions avoidance maneuver annually. This increased to four maneuvers between 2011 and 2012, in addition to two incidents in which the space station crew were evacuated into the Soyuz vehicle due to insufficient time for the station to maneuver out of the path of a potential debris particle impact. The international community has come together to tackle the orbital debris problem with a two-pronged approach. The first is its efforts at space debris mitigation, and the second is its endeavors with space debris remediation. International support for the mitigation of future space debris in Earth orbit has been robust, despite the lack of a binding legal framework. Consensus between experts on the gravity of the situation has led the international scientific and technical communities to lobby for global standards of space debris mitigation, leading to informal provisions of non-binding principles. In terms of state practice, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, of the United States became the first space agency in the world to adopt a comprehensive set of orbital debris mitigation guidelines in 1995. These guidelines form the basis of the orbital debris mitigation standard practices developed by the United States in 1997. The National Space Development Agency, NASTA, of Japan, followed suit with the adoption of its own space debris mitigation standards in 1996. In 2000, the Russian Aviation and Space Agency approved its space debris mitigation standards. These standards are, by order of the Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos, applicable to all space assets production and operation. 
They were revised in 2009 and harmonized with general international guidelines. In 2005, China released the first part of its national industry standards on space debris mitigation, following up in December 2009 with its interim measures on the administration of mitigation and protection against space debris. In line with these standards, China has moved a few decommissioned satellites out of geosynchronous orbit. In response to the growing threat of damage caused by orbital debris, the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee, or IADC, an intergovernmental forum comprised of various national space agencies, drafted the IADC Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines. These guidelines reflect and consolidate measures taken by its member agencies to tackle the space debris issue. They focus on the prevention of on-orbit spacecraft breakups, the removal of end-of-mission spacecraft and orbital stages, and the limitation of objects released during regular space operations. These guidelines have been implemented by member agencies in their space activities. For example, in 2008, the European Space Agency, ESA, promulgated requirements on space debris mitigation for ESA projects. These requirements are in line with the IADC guidelines. The United Kingdom's National Licensing Authority uses the IADC guidelines as a standard for assessing the compliance of proposed space activities with the best practices of the space industry. In furtherance of these IADC guidelines, the Space Systems and Operations Subcommittee of the International Standards Organization's Aircraft and Space Vehicles Technical Committee developed technical implementation standards for space debris mitigation measures. These standards cover disposal maneuvers for uncrewed spacecraft, compliance and management routes for space debris mitigation, removal of non-functioning satellites on a geosynchronous orbit, and re-entry for uncrewed spacecraft and launch vehicle orbital stages. The European Cooperation for Space Standardization, or ECSS, has also adopted some of these standards. In 2004, the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUOS, established a working group on space debris. Working on the IADC guidelines and basing itself on the UN Treaty Framework for Space Activities, the Working Group published the Revised Draft Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines, which were endorsed by the United Nations in 2007. Since 2010, the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee has also added the long-term sustainability of outer space activities to its agenda. It is a pity, however, that the mandate of the Legal Subcommittee of COPUOS does not include the consideration of substantive legal aspects of space debris mitigation. Despite repeated calls to include a review of space debris mitigation guidelines on its agenda so that the guidelines could be transformed into a resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, these efforts have thus far come to naught. However, in February of 2018, the Scientific and Technical Committee of the COPUOS finalized nine additional guidelines on the long-term sustainability of outer space. Elaborating on the IADC guidelines, some European states issued a joint European Code of Conduct for Space Debris Mitigation. Drafted by the Network of Centres Space Debris Coordination Group, this Code of Conduct represents the work of the European Space Agencies since 1999. It is intended as a code for industry partners and other concerned public and private entities to assist in the application of measures to reduce or prevent the buildup of orbital debris. These guidelines and codes of conduct are not legally binding. However, they serve as recommended standards and best practices policies, 
indicating the general trend of regulation relating to orbital debris. The guidelines and codes of conduct also make it clear that there is a critical mass of political will to ensure that future space missions do not continue to pollute Earth orbit. However, modeling has shown that the rate of decaying debris will decrease beyond 2055, leading to an overall net increase in the overall space debris population as a result of collisions. Post-mission disposal of non-functioning space objects will be insufficient to prevent a net increase. Extrapolation of this modeling has shown that active removal of space debris is one of the only workable methods by which to limit the growth of the future space debris population. In 2006, the International Academy of Astronautics instituted a working group to study the possibilities for the remediation of space debris in Earth orbit. The primary objective of this working group is to examine the feasibility and effectiveness of space object removal to control the space debris environment. The study identified challenges to the remediation of the space debris problem, which mainly revolve around the lack of funding and political will, as well as the ambiguous legal framework surrounding issues of state responsibility, liability, owner's consent, and risk management. The second area of concern in relation to the protection of the outer space environment relates to the risk of contamination through the use of nuclear power sources. Nuclear contamination is closely linked to the issue of space debris. The risk of contamination by nuclear power sources increases with the possibility of collisions from orbital debris. The gravest risk posed by the use of nuclear power sources, however, is the possibility of the nuclear contamination of the Earth. An example of this is the 1978 re-entry of Cosmos 954, a Soviet satellite carrying a uranium-fueled nuclear power source. As its orbit decayed, it made an uncontrolled re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, and it disintegrated over the territory of Canada, scattering radioactive debris over its northwest territories. In a stroke of good fortune, it crashed into an uninhabited tract of land. Had it crashed into a populated area, there would have been enormous damage to public health and safety, on top of massive property damage. The specter of a nuclear fallout has haunted the international community for many years. Efforts to prohibit nuclear tests began as early as 1955, when the former Soviet Union proposed the cessation of nuclear testing. International concern about high-altitude nuclear tests, which cause electromagnetic pulses that impacted satellites in Earth orbit, speeded up the negotiations, which led to the 1963 Partial Test Ban Treaty between the former Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The Partial Test Ban Treaty prohibits nuclear explosions in outer space and led to a dramatic decrease in the number of atmospheric nuclear tests. Article 4 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty prohibits the placement in Earth orbit of any objects carrying nuclear weapons, as well as the installation of nuclear weapons on celestial bodies or the stationing of nuclear weapons in outer space in any manner. The term nuclear weapon was left undefined in the Outer Space Treaty. However, the International Court of Justice, in its advisory opinion on the legality of the use or threat of nuclear weapons, defined nuclear weapons as explosive devices whose energy results from the fusion or fission of the atom, regardless of the purpose. By this definition, any nuclear explosive device in outer space may be considered a nuclear weapon. However, the use of nuclear power sources in space missions will continue to be necessary. 
Nuclear power systems, unlike solar-powered systems, are able to operate where there is insufficient solar energy, such as in deep space. Moreover, the weight-to-capacity ratio of nuclear power generators is considerably lower than that of other systems, considerably lowering costs and increasing the operational lifespan of spacecraft. However, nuclear power sources present hazards in the case, for example, of launch failures, leakage in Earth orbit, or re-entry. On the 14th of December 1992, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the principles relevant to the use of nuclear power sources in outer space. These principles are applicable to the use of nuclear power sources for the generation of electric power on space objects, but not to the use of nuclear power propulsion systems. These principles reiterate many rules accepted in international space law, such as the application of general international law to space activities meaning that international environmental law also applies to the use of nuclear power sources. They also reiterate the rules relating to international responsibility for national space activities and liability for damage caused as provided by the Outer Space Treaty. More specific to nuclear power sources, the 1992 principles explicitly require the launching state to conduct a thorough and comprehensive safety assessment prior to launch, and adopts a narrow definition of launching state, limiting it to the state that exercises jurisdiction and control over the space object with nuclear power sources on board at the relevant time. The 1992 principles are not binding, being a resolution of the United Nations General Assembly and not a treaty. However, they provide a framework for the crystallization of legal norms relating to the use of nuclear power sources. Another document of note is the Safety Series document on Emergency Planning and Preparedness for Nuclear-Powered Satellite Reentry, published in 1996 by the At International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. This document is intended to assist states in their response to possible reentry events and contains recommendations on the locating, monitoring and recovery phases. Moreover, in 2009, the IAEA and COPIWOS jointly published a safety framework for nuclear power source applications in outer space. This document is intended to provide a foundation for the development of national and international emergency safety frameworks and focuses on the protection of people and the Earth environment from potential hazards associated with the launch, operation and end-of-life phases of space objects with nuclear power sources. As humanity pushes the boundaries of its exploration of the solar system and beyond, there is the possibility that we may meet with extraterrestrial life forms. Now, popular culture tends to paint these as green, bipedal, Earth-language-speaking creatures. And the truth is that such exobiological creatures may range from single-cell prokaryotes to beings far more advanced than we are. The search for biosignatures, however, carries with it certain risks to the biosphere not only of the Earth in the case of a sample return mission, but also of the target celestial body. And this is the third area of concern in relation to the protection of the environment from potential hazards caused by space activities. In 1964, the Committee on Space Research, COSPAR, published recommendations relating to planetary protection and quarantine measures. In 2002, the COSPAR Planetary Protection Policy was adopted. The policy intends to prevent forward and backward contamination, that is, to protect both the Earth 
from potential hazards caused by extraterrestrial material carried by a spacecraft returning from an interplanetary mission, as well as to ensure that potential extraterrestrial life forms are not jeopardized by activities initiated from Earth. The policy is regarded as the international consensus standard for biological contamination as an interpretation and implementation of Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty. The United States and the member states of the European Space Agency comply with the COSPAR requirements. The COSPAR requirements have been re regularly updated since 1964 in order to keep up to date with scientific advancements. In March of 2011, COSPAR amended its policy to include principles and guidelines for human missions to Mars. In terms of state practice, the United States has promulgated its planetary protection policy as a NASA policy directive. This directive applies to all spaceflight missions, robotic and human, which may intentionally or unintentionally carry Earth organisms and organic constituents to celestial bodies, as well as any mission intended to return to Earth and its biosphere from extraterrestrial targets of exploration. Crewed planetary missions fall under the NASA Policy for Planetary Protection requirements for human extraterrestrial missions, which require the development of specific technologies and procedures for crewed planetary missions. Compliance with formal implementation requirements is overseen by NASA's Planetary Protection Officer, which takes advice and recommendations from internal and external advisory committees. These implementation requirements are based on the most current science available and routinely assessed as new information comes available. The European Space Agency operates in line with its ESA planetary protection policy, which requires the agency to ensure that interplanetary contamination does not take place and that the agency is in compliance with the COSPA planetary protection policy in both robotic and crewed missions. ESA maintains technical standards for sterilization processes, microbial examination of flight hardware, and bioburden control in order to implement its planetary protection policy. Some states, such as Australia and the United Kingdom, build requirements to prevent the contamination of outer space into its national licensing frameworks. Licensees are required to conduct their operations so as to prevent the contamination of outer space or adverse changes to the Earth environment. Given the severity of the threats facing the environments of Earth and outer space, it is unfortunate that international space law has not devised a binding framework relating to the environmental impact of space activities. Although the non-binding guidelines and codes of conduct have sought to fill this lacuna, there is still no binding law that requires actors and stakeholders to prevent environmental damage in outer space, and certainly no law that requires actors and stakeholders to remedy damage already caused. This must change if we are to ensure the sustainable development, exploration and use of outer space. If we continue with space activities with no thought to the preservation of the environment, humanity would have created the greatest obstacle to its own exploration of outer space. Thank you.